Palm Sunday. Rob Sweet approached me about three or four weeks ago, and he said, Mike, I'd like you to preach on Palm Sunday. I said, fantastic. He said, I said to him, what specific text would you like me to preach? He said, do a Palm Sunday message. I'm like, really? Normally when Rob Sweet asks me to preach, it goes something like this. Mike, we're teaching from Mark. You'll have chapter 11, verses 9 to 16a. And you've got these, you've got these really narrow guidelines, Okay. I love expository preaching. Our church holds it in high regard. That means you've got to work through the text methodically, verse by verse by verse. You can't kind of cherry pick your favorite verses. You've got to work through the text and deal with whatever's right in front of you. For the guys who are really good at this, the Lloyds, the Robs, etc., those guardrails, that's plenty wide. But for me, that's a challenge because inevitably I like peek over to Luke or to John and see that the cool stuff is actually in those books of the Bible that we're going to be teaching on in Mark chapter 11, but you can't go there because the guardrails are here and to honor the text, you got to stay here. And for guys like me, that's frustrating. Well, when Rob said, Mike, teach a Palm Sunday message, I'm like, yeah, okay, I've got, I've got a wider lane today. So what I did as my preparation is I wanted to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I wanted to look at what all the different books of our New Testament in the Gospels had to say about Palm Sunday. And I discovered a couple things. Do you know that this is only the second event recorded in the Gospels in the the ministry of Jesus that all four Gospel authors talk about? The first one is the feeding of the 5,000. Only the second event in the life of Jesus that all four biblical authors, all four Gospel authors record is Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And as I was going through here, I wanted to look for the things that kind of jumped off the page and seemed different. I didn't want to do a normal Sunday teaching on, well, all four say this and all four say this. That'd be kind of boring, right? How many of you have heard a Palm Sunday message before? Raise your hand. Nice and high. Nice and high. Good. How many of you have heard 15 Palm Sunday messages before? Yeah. So this is my challenge, right? Rob gives me the ability to give a Palm Sunday message, but we've all heard Palm Sunday messages before. In fact, there's probably some spiritual giants in this room. As I'm surveying the room, I could probably point out a couple. I see Emily Weber, who could probably preach a Palm Sunday message on her own in here. Do it better than me. We all know the details of Palm Sunday, if you've been in church for any length of time. Jesus uh, tells his disciples, go ahead, head into Jerusalem. By the way, I'm going to need a donkey. Can you go, go find a donkey? It'll be over here. Tell the guy this. He'll ask you this question. Do this. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. They're dropping palm branches, shouting Hosanna. We've heard that before, right? For sure. So I'm looking at this going, what do I do that's different on this Palm Sunday? What can I do that'll be even in the least bit interesting or intriguing? So my tack this week was I wanted to look for what was different. And I felt like I found one thing, and I want to spend a little bit of time on that today. But before I get into that, I want to give you a little bit of context, because context is king whenever you're reading the Bible. It's helpful to know the political backdrop. It's helpful to know the cultural backdrop. And so before we dive into the text, I want to just try to paint a picture of Palm Sunday for you if I can. Um, This specific week that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, uh, he's coming into Jerusalem at a time where the city will overflow in population. Everyone will tell you, historian, uh, everyone who looks at this specific period in Israel's history, that the population in Jerusalem will literally grow to 10 times its normal population level. And that's because people are showing up to celebrate what festival? What is it? Passover. People are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover at this time. What on earth is Passover? 
Well, before Jesus shows up into Jerusalem on this day riding on a donkey, 1,500 years, roughly, prior to this, there was an event called Passover uh, that we can remember if we go through the Old Testament looking at the book of Exodus. Now, um, 1,500 years prior to this event, there's a man named Pharaoh, and he has enslaved the Hebrews in Egypt, and figuratively speaking, he's got his foot on their necks. They are living a very, very oppressed life, and the Hebrews are calling out to God daily, save us, rescue us. What is the Hebrew word for save us? Does anyone know? It's Hosanna. So 1,500 years ago in Egypt, every Hebrew would be shouting the word Hosanna to their God. Save us, we pray. And as you know from the story it's told in the book of Exodus, that's exactly what God did. God would send a redeemer. He would send a man named Moses that would be a a savior in a sense to his people. He would rescue them from their plight because God would send a series of plagues to the Egyptians, numerous different plagues that he would heap upon the Egyptians, culminating in a final plague of death uh, that would only be avoidable if the people who were to seek protection from this plague, covered their household with the blood of the lamb. A lamb had to be slaughtered, and the blood of the lamb had to be painted on the doorpost of the house. And if that happened, you would be spared the plague of death. I hope you're smelling some foreshadowing, my friends. The Hebrews would obtain their freedom. They would gain their independence. They would also step into the land that God promised them. Freedom, independence, and land would be theirs as a result of God liberating them from their, um, their situation. So when you think of those three words, I want to sort of give this an American mindset just for a moment. Passover for them is kind of like our 4th of July, right? It's a time that we look on our calendars and we remember how we obtained our freedom, how we obtained our independence and inherited our land from our oppressors. Now you might think, All right, Mike, not bad, but you're kind of overreaching here, right? There was no godly intervention, you know, in the American story. Oh, yeah? Try telling that to our founding fathers. We don't have time to get into this. I actually printed off a speech from Benjamin Franklin that he delivered to the Continental Congress in 1787. My friends, it is crystal clear that our founding fathers saw evidence of the Almighty at work in the deliverance of this country as well. Again, that's a pretty radical bunny trail, so I'm going to try to... Not have lane markers here. I'm going to try to keep it here. But um, I bring the backstory of Passover into this picture for a reason. You need to know that as a nation, uh, at the time that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, the the Jews are grieving once again. Um, Because at the time of Christ, Israel is an occupied state, right? This wonderful land that God gave them and the freedom that they received, they're both kind of gone right now. Sure, they're inhabiting the land, but they don't control it. And they're living underneath the political rule of a foreign enemy, of a foreign entity, the Romans. And, uh, you know, to kind of complete the analogy, Pilate is kind of their modern-day pharaoh. And the Jews are once again living a very oppressed reality. Now, for the Jews, this week called Passover, they're getting ready to celebrate the time uh, when God liberated them, when God freed them from their oppressive enemies. But if you're a Jew living in Jerusalem at this time, you've got two words. Look around, right? Are you feeling liberated right now? Are you feeling freed? Are we celebrating what God has done? No, they're feeling restricted 
and oppressed once again. They are desperately seeking deliverance. They're desperately seeking change. The way that I would encourage you to think about this, picture if America had lost World War II. What if we had lost the Second World War to the Germans? All right? As I was trying to visualize what this would be like, two things came to mind. Number one, if we had lost World War II and America was operating under the control of Germany, the first thing that I think would be certain is that we would be driving a lot more Volkswagens right now. Okay? How many of you drive a Volkswagen? Exactly. There's like two of you. Okay? We'd be driving a lot more Volkswagens right now. The second thing I thought would be certain if we had been conquered by the Germans and we were living underneath German control would be this. Every time our calendars rolled around to July 4th, there would be a bitterness right here. There would be a real anger in the American mindset because that holiday that we recognize on July 4th would only be a solemn reminder to us of the freedom that once was ours but no longer is. Okay? This is what's going on in Israel right now. The words on the lips of the people are once again, free us, liberate us, deliver us. Okay? Now, if you're a Jew on the street of Jerusalem at this time, and you see this parade marching into Jerusalem with this guy on a donkey leading the charge, let me try to sketch this out for you a little bit. This guy, Jesus, you've either seen him before or you've heard him before, one or the other. He's not a stranger to Jerusalem. He's been here numerous times. And when he comes, he's teaching us about the kingdom of God. He's got a really cool way of teaching about the things of God, the coming kingdom of God. And you've noticed that he's a great teacher. But more than that, he accompanies these teachings with some miraculous feats. He touches a person and their leprosy is gone. He touches a person's eye who's blind, and now they can see. The deaf can hear. When Jesus approaches someone who's lame, who can't walk, all of a sudden they stand up and they begin walking. This Jesus does amazing things. In fact, people who have been oppressed by evil spirits, by dark spirits, who have been overcome by the control of evil spirits, Jesus simply speaks to the spirit within, this, within these people, and the spirit leaves. Jesus demonstrates his authority over evil spirits. Just a few weeks ago, this guy Jesus, he was over in Bethany, just a little bit east of our town, and there was a guy named Lazarus who had died, and he brought this Lazarus fella back to life. By what? Simply speaking a few words. Lazarus, come forth. And a man who had been dead for three days gets up out of the grave and begins walking. In fact, what's crazy in this parade I'm watching, Lazarus is in the stinking parade. I can go talk to the guy. He's right there. This Jesus has done incredible things. Oh yeah, I'm going to lay down my coat for this guy. I'm going to put my coat down on the ground. I'm going to celebrate this Jesus. Come on, king. Come on, Jesus. Yeah. If the demons obey you, surely the demon of the Roman world will obey you, right? Pilate's going down because this guy's coming to town. I see the end of our oppression. This is it. Someone hand me a palm branch. Bring on Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Team Jesus. Everyone's going to be celebrating because of what this guy can do for them. And as you look at the gospel authors, they all tell you that the people are cheering. Coats are going down, palm branches are waving, everybody's excited. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, there is fanfare, there is acclaim, there is excitement, there's anticipation. And three of the four gospel authors have the camera out and they're recording the crowd. 
They're recording how the crowd is receiving him. But one of the gospel authors has the camera turned around, and he's looking at the guy on the donkey. And that caught my attention this week. Do me a favor. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to go to Luke 19, verse 41 first. I'll give you a couple seconds to get there. Luke chapter 9, verse 41. The camera is pointing at the guy on the donkey. It says this. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had only known this day the things that make for peace. Let me give you the mic translation of that because the NASB for me is a little, little harder to understand. I'll read verse 41 again. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If only you had known this day the things that make for peace. Jesus is crying. In our Bibles, we catch the Lord crying three different times. Jesus cries at a funeral. He weeps in Gethsemane at the solution of sin. And we find him here crying at the error of his nation. Now, commentators are quick to point out that the word used here in Luke chapter 19 for Jesus' remorse, it's different than the word used for his crying in the other places in the Bible where it records it. The word used here is, I'm going to butcher this, kaleo is what it's, uh, I think it sounds like in Greek. I am no Greek scholar, so I'm probably destroying that word. But the word is something like kaleo, and it has a much more powerful meaning than the other words that are used for Jesus' tears in the other accounts. Kaleo has the idea of deep sorrow, of full sobbing, even of wailing. You guys, Jesus is beside himself crying as he approaches the city that is waving palm branches to greet him. Why? What is with this? He's not enjoying his own party. Skip ahead in Luke 19 to verse 44 and we get a glimpse as to why. The very end of verse 44 we see that Jesus realizes that Jerusalem would not recognize the time of his visitation. God had visited Jerusalem in Jesus. Jesus came to his own, but his own would receive him not. Sure, they're waving palm branches right now, but that'll change very quickly. The stone that the builders looked at, they would reject And in a few days' time, they would throw on the ash heap of Golgotha. That's what Jesus knows is coming. Now, John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, said this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God, or sorry, for the kingdom of heaven has come. And when you return to God with all your heart, then you will be restored. Guys, Jesus weeps because the people, they want political, they want economic, they want military change but nobody wants to repent. They're looking for the wrong kind of deliverer. Like the man clapping on the street, Jerusalem wants a five-star general. Jerusalem wants a politician. Jerusalem wants an economist. Nobody wants one who can save them from their sin. Everybody wants change, don't get me wrong, but nobody wants what is needed. And so much like a parent who has to watch their child making a foolish decision, Jesus is mourning a city that is sealing its fate. Because for Jerusalem, there is no excuse. 
The Jews in Jerusalem, they had the Old Testament scriptures. They had uh, the writings from the prophets that preceded Jesus, foretelling of the Messiah who would come. Jesus had performed many miracles in Jerusalem, very publicly. Some of these were in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the coming Christ, right? There were many miracles that attested to who he was. His ministry, his blessing from God was alive and clear to all. But Jerusalem would reject him. They would not accept this evidence. They would reject the Messiah. And the same voices that are shouting Hosanna today in five days' time are going to be shouting something very different. What are they going to be shouting in five days? Crucify him. Very fickle crowd. And Jerusalem would have to live with this rejection. They would have to live with the consequences of rejecting Jesus. What, what is left for those who reject Jesus? One word, my friends, judgment. And it is the judgment of Jerusalem that causes Jesus to weep because he foresees what is left for them when they deny Christ. Hear me on this. I want to be black and white kind of clear. God will bring judgment to the people who do not accept God's Son Jesus. If you reject Jesus, what awaits you is judgment. Oh, that's an uplifting sermon. Good job, right? Guys, there is a hard truth that is in this text that I don't want to try to avoid and I don't want to try to sidestep. I want to try to confront it head on because I think for most of us, this is the element of the gospel that is most offensive to us. There are very few ways of making this sound palatable. Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. He's it. There's no plan B. There's no plan C. There's no detour. Jesus Christ is it. If you do not accept Christ, judgment awaits you. Now, when I say that, all kinds of people outside the church, and I would even venture to say some people inside the church get more than just a little bit uncomfortable because that claim it sounds too exclusive. It sounds too narrow, bigoted, right? It's too judgmental. We live in a society where people can pick their gender now. What do you mean I can't pick my path to heaven? I'm used to having all these choices, all these options. Nope, it's Jesus or nothing. And I think for a lot of people, being able to communicate this well is a difficult task we can't water down the message. We can't water down what the Bible tells us about this, but we've got to find a way of communicating this in a way that doesn't offend any more than it needs to. By the way, the Bible is clear that this is an offensive claim. Peter himself says that Jesus is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. The Bible acknowledges that this is a difficult teaching. But let's, let's go here. Let's look at, does the Bible teach this clearly before we try to see if we need to defend this? Okay, you don't need to switch in your Bibles with me. I'll probably go through these a little bit quickly just in light of time, but let me give you a few different verses just for us to build our case. We just finished a teaching series on the book of Acts, right? Plan A. And in a sermon in the book of Acts in uh, chapter four, uh, verses 11 and 12, Peter is delivering a sermon to a whole bunch of Jews. And in his sermon, he says this, referring to Jesus, he says, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the cornerstone. Listen to this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Salvation is in 
no one else. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says this, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. One mediator. In fact, Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 6, you know this one, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So it's very clear that the Bible teaches this. But what's behind this exclusivity? What's behind the narrow road that's being described here? Well, we need to understand and wrap our mind around the problem. What is the problem? All of mankind, you and me and everybody else out there, it doesn't matter if you're in Tallahassee, it doesn't matter if you're in Tibet, wherever you are in this world, and no matter what your upbringing was, we are all conscious of the fact that we are separated from God. We are inherently aware of the fact that we are at odds with the one who created us. I knew that personally before I was a Christian. I was, had a crystal clear mind from that. And it's because there's a moral law that's been implanted in all of us. There's something that God places right here that tells us how we're supposed to act. Well, I should be doing this, but I shouldn't be doing this. And C.S. Lewis says this about the moral law. He says, something appears within me as law that urges me to do right. And it makes me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. Right? There's something in us not because our parents told us or our neighbors told us, there's something in us that pushes us towards certain patterns of conduct. But we also have to recognize that despite being urged to certain behaviors, we don't live up to those behaviors. Whether it be this month or this week or this very day, all of us have failed to practice the kind of behavior that we expect from other people. We know right, we know wrong, but we don't ourselves hold to the standard that we know to be what we are to uphold ourselves to. And because of that, we're very conscious of the emotion of guilt. Now, when I say we're conscious of the sense of guilt in our conduct, let me just give you a 30-second backstory of me. Uh, I think I mentioned to you when I was up here uh, during the elder interviews that I became a Christian at 21. I had never been in church prior to that. I'd never been to a church service. Uh, I saw a couple cousins get married in church, and that was about it. I was 20 years old with some friends on the roof of a houseboat. We had uh, been enjoying a few beers, before you get all churchy on me, the drinking age in Canada is 18, so I was well within my legal rights. Um, but I had been drinking on the roof of a houseboat, and for whatever reason, I just got emotional. And it became very clear to me as I was reflecting back on my past that there was a number of things that I had done in my past that I was absolutely ashamed of. Things for which I knew I was just so in the wrong, some acts I had done that were so detestable that I knew that if God did exist and I was to meet him, I knew it was going to be a bad day. I don't know where that came from. It was out of left field because I had never read the Bible. I had never heard the gospel. I had never been to church. But I knew right here that based on what I had done, it was going to be a bad day if God existed. And I had to give an account for what I had done. I think that experience is somewhat universal. Now, I can read you a short account from a biography of a guy named Gandhi. How many of you ever heard of Gandhi before? This is a guy who was trying much harder than me to live a good life, by the way. He says in his autobiography, he says, It is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him whom I know governs my every breath and, uh, of my life and whose offspring I am. He says, I know it is because of the evil passions within me that keep me so far from him, yet I cannot get away from them. 
What is Gandhi referring to? What are these evil passions that are within him? Why does he feel so far from God? Why did I feel so far from God? One word, sin. Isaiah 59.2 in your Bible says, your sins have separated you from your God. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My friend, it it is our sin that creates a gap between us and God, and we realize that we are at odds with our maker and that we need to to somehow be reconciled and restored to him, but we don't know how. So why is Jesus the solution to this debacle? Well, very simply, he is the only one who has solved the problem of sin. He lived his entire life completely sin-free, He never once broke the moral law that was embedded within him. He had done nothing throughout his entire life for which he need be ashamed. You might be saying to yourself, well, how does that help me? Well, very simple. God lived a life. He's the only person who's ever lived a life that was worthy before a holy God. Jesus lived a life that God would receive because his life was without sin. And Jesus' sinless life, he offers to us He offers to pay for our sins on his own behalf. He gives to us his sinlessness. He takes upon himself our sin, and he decides and agrees to go to the cross to pay the penalty that was due to you, and he does that on our behalf. It's a glorious exchange. The inheritance of Adam, the curse of Adam, was broken. Romans 5, verse 19 says this, Just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. That is Jesus. In the glorious exchange that Jesus gives us, his sinlessness for our sin, he reconciles us to God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My friends, why is Jesus the only way? Why can Muhammad not save you? Why can Buddha not save you? Why can Confucius not save you? If you're a Mormon, why can Joseph Smith not save you? Simply this. They had their own sins to pay for. Finish this verse for me. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. Guys, death is evidence of our sin. It is evidence of our sin. And the founders of all these other religions, where are they right now? They're in their graves. Their tombs are still occupied because they had their own sins to pay for. They can do nothing for your sins because they were busy paying for their own or attempting to pay for their own. They didn't have the resources to make you right before God. Only one person has those resources, and his name is Jesus. And he offers to you a gift if you choose to accept it. Guys, Jesus defeated sin. He conquered the grave. By his resurrection on Sunday, he demonstrated that sin had no power over him. And I don't want to get too far on this message down this road because this is starting to feel like a message for next Sunday. But let me just tell you this. Death couldn't hold him. Death could not keep him in the grave. His resurrection validates that his claims can be trusted when he says that he can be the provision for your sins and the path to your salvation. He's the only one who can make that claim. No one else can. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what your journey is. 
I have no idea what your story is. Perhaps you've been in church your whole life and this sounds like repetition. You've heard this before. If that's the case, just endure. If you've been coming to church for a while and you're still kind of checking out this Jesus guy but you're not sure where you stand on him, I want to encourage you to make a decision. I want to encourage you to feel like you are at a crossroads and you've got to choose left or you've got to choose right. Because here's the reality. The people in Jerusalem on this day, they had a choice to make. They can either choose for Jesus or they could choose against Jesus. But you have to make a choice. And the choice that's yours today is the choice of every person in Jerusalem on this fated Sunday. Are you for or are you against? There is no, hmm, not sure. The choice must be made. And if you haven't made that choice this morning, my friends, let me encourage you to approach this decision with a proper amount of reverence that is due to it. Because in a culture that kind of uh, views religion on like the hobbyist level, this is something that's kind of fun, it's kind of something you do on Sunday, right? Let me tell you that the decision for or against Jesus is a significant decision that bears weighty consequences. Sometimes in our culture today, we approach religion the way that people would approach ice cream, right? They're going to pick whatever flavor kind of suits them based on their taste buds, right? You walk down the aisle in Kroger and like, oh, I got Ben and Jerry's, right? I got... I got Hagen dazs I'm feeling bluebell today, right? And you think, ah, oh, I'm going to make the decision based on what feels best for my taste buds. Guys, when you're choosing an ice cream, pick the flavor that you want. But I want to let you know that looking at Jesus is not like choosing an ice cream. It's much more like choosing a medicine. When you're looking at a medicine to select, you approach your decision-making very differently. If I was a friend of yours and I was to tell you that I had a doctor visit this week and the doctor gave me a very stark prognosis, he said, Mike, you've got a malady and I'm sorry to say it is killing you. It is a fatal diagnosis and there is only one way out. You've got to take this specific medicine and if you do this, you will live. Well, what if I told you as my friend that I opted to not take this medicine because it didn't taste very good? I didn't, I tasted yucky. I didn't want to take the medicine, and so I've decided to avoid doctor's orders, to go against doctor's orders, and I've decided instead to, to take gummy bears once a day because they taste so much better. If you were my friend, what would you say to me? Right? First of all, you'd give me a really stark look. Second, you might give me a bit of a wake-up call, and then you'd probably say something like, Mike, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I'm glad your taste buds are tickled by the gummy bears. Have the gummy bears, but don't avoid your medicine. If your goal is to find healing from the malady that's killing you, take the pill. Take the medicine because it's your only chance at life. Here's the point. Many people today approach religion because they, they think that Jesus is like ice cream. They don't picture Jesus as being more like insulin. And they survey their religious options to satisfy a subjective taste and not to solve an objective problem. My friends, sin is killing us, every one of us, and not just us in this room, people out there as well. And Jesus offers you a pardon. He offers you a free gift. He offers you a get-out-of-jail-free card. He offers you a get-out-of-hell card. It is a gift. He offers you his sinlessness. He offers you his perfection. But as you know, a gift needs to not only be offered, needs to not only be accepted or extended, it has to also be accepted in order for it to be activated. And it's very simple. 
You can either accept the pardon for your moral offenses that is offered to you through Christ. You can either accept the pardon and go free, or you can reject the pardon and you can pay for your moral offenses yourself. It's one way or the other. Okay? But it is your choice. It is your choice. And my friends, next week at this time, our churches, like Jerusalem, are going to be overflowing with people. And there's going to be a whole lot of people that are going to have a visitation by Christ at that time. And these people are going to need to make a decision. Perhaps there's some of you in this room who are going to need to make a decision. Will you accept Jesus' offer of salvation or will you reject it? Please know the heart of Christ in this. He was brought to tears when he foresaw the people that would reject his offer. My friends, would you please, if you have not done so, would you receive the gift that Jesus offers to you today? Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the people at Fellowship Bible. Lord, I thank you for the tears of Jesus that weep as he considers those who will reject him, as he considers the offer that he has earned and that he has merited on our behalf that some people have chosen to turn away from. Lord, I see that your eyes are full of tears as you consider this rejection. And Father, I know that perhaps there's some of us in this room who are somewhat calloused towards the people that we know in our own lives who have not yet made a decision for you. Father, I pray we'd feel a burden that we don't feel right now. Help us to participate in your remorse. Help us to participate, Lord, in your tears that we would feel the weight and the sorrow of an eternity apart from you. Lord, give us boldness this week to initiate conversations with people so that we can cause them to have a visitation with you. Lord, help us to bring people to that crossroads that they may make a decision for or against you. Lord, give us the boldness to initiate these conversations. For Father, we are grateful that you have chosen to pay the price on our behalf to accomplish that which we could not do on our own. Oh Lord, help us to carry this weight, this heavy weight with reverence and Lord, may we not be casual about what you have done for us. We love you, Jesus, and we just we ask for opportunities this week to make you known. It's in your name we pray. Amen.